So thank you very much for that. Thank you, Nick and others, once again, for the opportunity to speak or to share from God's Word. Um, really do consider it a great honor. You know, that we as elders consider ourselves eunuch in the, in the harem, as it were, of God, preparing God's people, God's church, God's bride um, for him, for his son. And I really do, and, and the purpose of that is to beautify the bride. And so I trust that every time that we share from this word and from this pulpit, that exactly that would happen. And then this morning, again, something would be received by each one of you to, as for myself too, a part of the bride, to be beautified for that beautiful day. And um, so to that end, I trust that God would be in, um, active and his spirit would be active here this morning. So as many of you may know, um, in 2011, so a couple of what, years ago, um, I shared last week or a couple of weeks ago in this uh, Goodness of God series, a little bit of my testimony, so you may have heard some of this, but um, at that time, I was confronted with a surgical procedure that needed to take place, a medical condition I had that had to be corrected, and I was faced with the very real fact or the reality that this um, surgery may actually not be successful and I, and I may actually die in, on the operating theater. And so, um, leading up to this proverbial D-Day, um, many things rushed through my mind, and one of it was whether I should or shouldn't write a letter to all my girls. I've got three girls, they were teenagers at the time, and I was sort of considering that whole scenario and thinking about that. And then the thing that really sort of encouraged me or what I wanted to do is I, I thought, well, what do I want the effect of this letter to be on their lives? And the thing that I came away with is that I, that I would desperately want them to <clears throat> love Jesus passionately and serve him wholeheartedly every day of their lives so that when we would meet again, if I was to die, that would be a great celebration as I enter into heaven and receive the welcome of their Father. And that I would be there to celebrate that with them. And so I've taken the passage of Second Peter, the book of Second Peter, um, as my thesis for this morning. And I've entitled it, The Final Instructions of a Loving, Passionate Church Father. Because if you read the book of Peter, that is what second letter of Peter, that is what you'd see. Peter, passionate church father, loving Jesus wholeheartedly, and he knows, as he says in verse 11, I think it is of the first chapter, that God told him that he would soon die. So this is his final letter to, to the church, to the saints. And his intention was, as it says here in verse 10 and 11, this is of chapter one, it says, therefore, my dear brothers, you can put in there, sisters. Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome. Some translations say an announced entrance or a celebrated welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter's intention with this letter is that he would give these key principles, life lessons or um, values or things that he think that if the saints were to pay attention to these things, their lives would be fruitful, overcoming, prosperous, and you know, just productive Christian lives, and that one day they would enter into the kingdom with receiving a rich welcome. And so that's my intention from preaching from this passage here today. So then, 
what are those points, those values or keys that Peter is giving here to the saints of all through all the ages? What would cause them to live overcoming, successful, um, pro, you know, uh, productive Christian lives? And I think if you read the book of Peter, you'll find three, these three things. There's much more. just want to say that this is not at all an exposition of this letter. There is so much theology, such incredibly beautiful things here. We can spend weeks and months on it. But this is just taking from that the intention, the purpose with which he wrote this letter. And I believe there are three things there. First of all is to know God. Nick actually spoke a bit about it already, and I trust that it would unfold more. It is the knowing of God. The first key principle that he is giving or, or a thing that would help you living a successful life, Christian life all the way through is to know God, to know God. Second is to watch out for false teachings. And the third is to live your lives in the light of eternity. Those are the three, the main things. So remember, this is Peter who has has been transformed by the love of Jesus. Not the one who put his foot in it and did things. No longer. He has been changed. And this is through all the years and the maturity, everything has come there. And he says, this is my final letters to you, the final things that I can leave with you. And pay attention to these three things. And so I believe we will do well if we can do that and take that into the end of this year and into 2024 to see our lives continue to prosper in God. So then let's look at them. Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 1 to 4, so I'm going to read first. It says, Simon Peter, the servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. How? Through our knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them, these great and precious promises, which is basically all of Scripture, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. So evil desires is what corrupts the world. It's basically what he's saying. And it's there. But listen, pay attention to the tense. He says that he has given us. It is a done deal. Remember, this is now to believers. It is not to unbelievers, this letter. It is to those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and knows what it, it means to be a follower of Christ. This is your status. You have been given everything that you need for a godly life. That is what, what our lives are all about, is to become Christ-like, is to be transformed into his likeness. That's what it is. But it is a done deal. But what is the key to unlock, unlock that Christ life, that power that is within you? It is the knowledge of him, of God. And so there are two Greek words that can be used to describe knowledge. The first is kenosis, which means intellectual knowledge. And the second is epikinosis which is experiential knowledge, knowledge. And that's the word that Peter is using here. So it's not just intellectually knowing God and everything about him, but it's actually having the experience of that, 
So having the experiential knowledge of God inside of you unlocks the godly character. And that is what it means when he is saying, so that you may participate in the divine nature. It's not that we become little gods. We don't become divine. We don't, we've listened, heard a little while ago when Nick was speaking on the goodness, um, in the goodness series, about the rich young ruler who wanted to know what should I do to be good. And Jesus said to him, there's nothing you can do to be good. There's only one who is good, and that is me. And what you need if you want to be good is you need me to come into you. Goodness is found in the person of Jesus. And it is receiving them as letting that nature of Jesus that is within you come out. So the principle is you need to get out of the way. But how can you get out of the way? It is by knowing him. The thing that really a little while ago sort of drove this home for me is when you look at the commission of Moses in Exodus 3, when Moses was commissioned by God, God revealed himself to Moses and he gave him this incredible task of going to free Israel from slavery and to address, you know, Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler at the time, and just tell them what needs to happen, you know, to let these people go. And Moses keep on complaining or having arguments against it, objecting to God's call in his life by saying, I am not, what, who am I? There's nothing, I don't speak well, I don't have any authority. Who am I that they would listen to me? Who am I that Israel would follow me and pay attention to me? It's all about him. Moses was blinded by him. But when God answers him, he doesn't address that. He doesn't say, don't worry, it's okay. He keeps on referring to who he is, God is. He keeps on saying, forget about yourself. Think about the one who is sending you. All the authority is in me. I am the one. I can change Pharaoh's heart. I can do everything. Look at me. And I believe that is the key for us. I just think there's so, so much. You know, there's things in your own life that you start getting frustrated with. Like, for instance, you find yourself always having a kind of inclination to listen to gossip. And you before you know it, you participate in it. And no matter how much you try not to do it, you, you just have a weakness there. You go there. Or there's, or even we find it in the world, the negativity of speech. You just find yourself drawn to that side. And you keep thinking, God, please change me. Change me. That's the wrong prayer. I believe the prayer should be, God, show me who you are. Show me more of who you are. And when you have a revelation of that, and grown in that experiential knowledge, knowing that inside of yourself, you will do what you're actually wanting to do. Because his nature is starting to be demonstrated through your life. You participate in the divine nature. You know, I read the book of um, uh, Corrie ten Boom recently, and she <coughs> was speaking after this whole episode of her, she was um, a, a lady who protected Jews during the Second World War, and eventually she was placed in concentration camps together with her family and, and all of that. And so, but she survives, her family all dies, but she survives. And afterwards she becomes a speaker and speaks in places and just shares the love of God and all these kind of things. And then she was confronted by one of the gods who actually, you know, mistreated them. And, and he had become a, a believer and he came up to her and he spoke and he wanted to shake her hand, but she just couldn't do it. She just couldn't do it. And she said, in, in that interaction, she spoke to God and she said, I cannot forgive this man. 
And Jesus said to her, well, she felt God speaking to her in a person and say, I'm not asking you to forgive him. I'm asking you to let my forgiveness flow through you. And when, and, and when she received that, knowing how much she's been forgiven, all those things, when God's forgiveness became experiential to her, she could extend that forgiveness. That's what this is all about. So when you continue in that chapter later on, you'll see, oh, sorry, um, if we just read the next thing. It says, yeah, sorry, no, before I do it, when you go to the end of chapter 2, you find this weird sort of two verses where um, Peter speaks about a god, I mean a dog returning to its vomit and a, a sow even after it's been washed going back to its um, to wallow in the mud. And that refers back to this. What Peter is saying is we act according to our nature, just like animals do. So in the passage just leading up to that, many people get hung up by this thing of thinking it is speaking about whether or not I can lose my salvation, once saved, always saved, all that whole argument. Peter is saying, actually, what you confess with your mouth, whether you've come up here to pray, a sinner's prayer, all those things are actually insignificant. The question is, have I got a transformed nature within me? That is the question, because you'll act true to your nature. Like a sheep will accidentally fall in the mud, but it's not his nature to go and roll in the mud. And that is what Peter is saying. So within us, the testimony of a true believer is if you are displaying the nature of God, if you're participating in his nature. And that's what this whole passage is all about. And it is in line with the rest of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If we are in Christ Jesus, we have become a new creation. All things are, are, are new. The old is gone, the new has come. Do you have a transformed nature? That is the question. Okay. So then, coming back to this knowing of God. There is so much power in the knowing of God. And that is why Peter puts this as his first and foremost principle to living an overcoming life, is to be transformed by the knowing of God. And then he carries on to say, actually, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith, which is the knowing of him. Then he goes through this list of things, which all refers to the nature of God, the qualities of God, the attributes of God. It says goodness, add to goodness knowledge, add to knowledge self-control, Add to self-control, perseverance, fruits of the Spirit. Add to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Four, if you possess these qualities, in other words, the nature of God is displayed in your life in an increasing measure. Incre interesting. Eh? Increasing measure. It's not just once and it's there and Peter's out, but in an increasing measure, this is what will keep you. It will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so our first importance is the knowing of him. Remember that. Then, very interestingly, the next 10 verses, Peter speaks about prophecy from verse 12 to 21. And he's got this whole story about prophecy. And I asked myself, why would Peter put in this passage of prophecy? 
in these precious 61 verses in which he is giving this final exhortation to the church, that he knows the things that would carry them through all generations as the church through all generations to receive that rich welcome into the presence of God, knowing that they've lived a productive Christian life. Why would he speak about prophecy? Well, because prophecy fulfilled is the most powerful testimony of the authenticity of the Word of God. And that everything that it says in it about who Jesus is, is actually true. Did you know that? He says there that it is more powerful than the eyewitness accounts of people. And we know even more powerful than archaeological evidence. Because archaeological evidence, all of it, by the way, actually testifies to scriptures and authenticity of the scriptures. But just to give you an idea of the power of the testimony of fulfilled prophecy. Did you know that there are no prophecies contained in the holy books of any other form of religion? None. Not Islam, not Hinduism, not Buddhism, not any other ism that exists out there. No one has prophecy. Why? Because only the Trinitarian God of the Bible is in control of the future. He knows the future, he can speak the future through his prophets, and he has the power to make it come into being. Exactly as he said, no other. The authenticity of this word. Second thing that's just extremely exciting is to know that, do you know that there are 332 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to the coming Messiah? and who it would be, what it would be like, all these kind of things. 332. And that every single one of them, except the ones pertaining to Jesus' second coming, because that is still to come, has been perfectly fulfilled to the finest details by Jesus. That is a huge testimony to authenticity of this word. Now, just to tell you how huge it is, there's a man, he's a professor, his name is Peter Stoner, he had a PhD in mathematics. He was a chairman of the Department of Statistics, Mathematics and Astronomy in the Pasadena City College until 1953. Now this man was, as a mathematician, statistician, made a study of the likelihood or the probability of fulfillment of prophecy. And he said for one person to fulfill only eight, only eight of these 300 prophecies, the probability for one person to be able to do that is 1 in 10 to the power of 17. Now, if you're not a mathematician, you, it maybe doesn't mean much to you. But just to give you an idea, if I had 10 to the power of 17 two-rand coins, it would be enough to cover the whole surface of South Africa one meter, I mean half a meter deep. That's the size of that figure. And the probability is that amongst all of this, there is one coin that's got a red dot on it. And somebody randomly goes, stick his hand, if that was possible, into all of that, move it around, pull it out, and come up with that one coin. How likelihood is that? What is the likelihood of that? That is the probability for one person, the same person, to be able to fulfill just eight. Now, Jesus fulfilled all of them, 300 plus. So he carried on to make studies to see 
Don't know why I came up with this number, but that's the article I read. And it said, the probability for some person, one person, to fulfill 48 of these prophecies, 48, is 1 in 10 to the power of 157. Oh, true is this word. How beautiful is the gift that we have that we can stake our lives on it. If ever you doubted it, you don't longer have any reason to doubt it. It has been proven mathematically and every other way. This is our precious Savior, and we have the privilege of experientially knowing him. So why did Peter put in this 10 verses about prophecy? Because he says prophecy comes from God. It's in there. And prophecy is a test. Fulfilled prophecy is a testament to the authenticity of this word. You can stake your very life on it, every single word in it. You do not have to question it any longer. <clears throat> and I want to echo what Nick had said this morning. Our freedom, our deliverance, our victory, everything is in knowing the truth about this word and about God applied to your life, experiencing it, worshiping him, being in his presence is where your deliverance comes from. Is letting the nature of God find its way through your weakness and being demonstrated as you participate in the divine nature. The knowing of God is the key to a successful Christian life, overcoming Christian life. Then it goes on, chapter 2, dealing with false prophecy and false teachers. So that's why it's just given us this statement beyond others, uh, all others, stake that you can drive and that this word is true because Peter knows that the devil is a very real foe and friends his name is Lucifer which means deceiver so if he could deceive Adam and Eve in a perfect pre-fall garden of Eden paradise don't think he cannot deceive you and me don't think you and I are strong enough to actually resist him you need to have this word inside of you to be able to resist him and the knowledge of it. And you must make every effort to increase in that knowledge and the knowing of him. That's what Peter is saying. Because the devil is real, and he will tempt you. And he will put up verse 2, or verse 1 and 2 of the second chapter. It says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there were false teachers among you. Oh, sorry, there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the sovereign Lord who bought you. So I thought to myself, what are probably the main or the key for me, heresies that has crept into the church, into our ranks, into the world, per se actually, and is undermining the sovereignty of God that we have to face and that we have to stand our ground on. And I think, and it comes actually through this passage as well, but I think there are mainly three. There are three heresies, false teachings that comes in. And the first one is the attack on the authenticity of the, of the description of creation as found in the Bible. Even in a church, there is this, to me, absolute nonsense of a thing called theistic evolution, where the 
acceptance of evolution has gone into the church to the point that they now say that it is theistic. In other words, God was in control of evolution and through evolution actually created the world. Absolute nonsense. First of all, there is no such thing as evolution being a science. Evolution is a theory. It is a theory that has been proven wrong by science from every point. I'm saying it emphatically. Evolution relies on three things. It relies on the existence of energy and matter. They don't know where it comes from. They cannot explain it. They relies on the fact that there is this oodles of time. Every time the theories fall through, they just add another three noughts to the amount of time that the world is so-called existed. And this whole thing of an old earth is nonsense. Everybody knows. They just don't want to acknowledge it. If you take the stuff that is volcanic eruptions, the stones that have been formed by that, that you can date, you know, it's measured. Then you date it according to carbon and all the stuff they use, it is way out. And the longer that stone lies there, the older it gets. Meanwhile, you know exactly what its age is. And this noughts gets added. So there's nonsense, this thing. There is no such thing. This is, the Bible is authentic. It is right. Jesus refers to, to the creation story ten times. So you think he's been lying. You have to throw out the whole Bible if you throw out the creation story. That is what it is. It is not evolution. Um, it is not science. The very first law of science says entropy. The law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy. Entropy means that substance always, the entropy of a substance always increases. In other words, put it in simple terms, everything goes from a state of order into disorder not the other way around. There is absolutely no evidence in the whole of creation that something has ever evolved from one degree of intellect to a higher degree of intellect. It does not exist. No fossil record supports it. They actually, Darwin acknowledged that the fossil records are against his theory. It was never proven. It is a simple theory. There is no such thing as energy just happening. Causality says to you, that it's a law of science. For every effect, there has to be a cause. You cannot just say something just happened and call it science. It is against science. The Big Bang is against science. Every effect has to have a cause. It's a law of causality. There's an excess. Energy can only be transferred. It cannot be from one form to another. It cannot be created. You see, friends, before creation, Science did not exist. Only God existed. God created, and that caused science to come into being. Because science explains how things are. It cannot explain how it originated. So don't let this thing of evolution trip you up. God created by his spoken word. The prophets say it. The psalmists say it. Jesus declares it by his spoken word. 2 Peter 3, 5 says, Long ago, by God's word, the heavens were made, came into being, and the earth was formed. That is what the Bible teaches. The second lie that is plaguing our age and our era is this thing about multiple gen genders. You know that some countries acknowledge, I think Canada, 50 classified gender identifications. Absolute nonsense. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Man and female, he created them. You are male and female. We just don't know what damage we do to children when we deny them their God-given identity. 
under the sovereignty of God that he has decided whether you are male or female and nothing else. That is a mountain to die on, I believe. We have to stand our ground. So, you know, this thing of God is in the business of transforming us, transforming us to greater degrees of glory, transforming us into a new nature, giving us new nature. The devil has taken it and made it a thing of transgender. Wants to give people the right to choose and trans sweep their gender. That's a counterfeit of the devil. And it is destructive. The only um, objective of the devil is to steal from the saints, to kill and to destroy. That is what John 10.10 10 says. He is a liar, and he can only produce lies. Then the third lie of Satan that I believe we have to fight and stand by is this thing of the authenticity of Scripture, that people deny the truth of it and therefore deny that Jesus is who he says he is. Nobody denies that Jesus lived. No one. Because the evidence is just too great. The historical, archaeological evidence is just too great. So no one denies it, but they deny who he is, who he says he is. Even the worst of people would say that Jesus was a good man. See, as Lewis said, that is not up to us to decide. He was either who he says he is, or he's an absolute lunatic. Because he tells us to follow him, and through that we would have entrance into heaven to God, access to the Father. So how can a good person do that if it is a lie? So he's not a good man. He is who he says he is, which is the Son of God. And that is a lie that has infiltrated into the world. And it has made this statement. And it's particularly the thing that Peter would touch on is the fact that he is coming again. So people acknowledge that he lived, people, but they deny that he is God and therefore deny that he would be coming back. And as a result of that, we have become the, the, the guardians of the galaxies, as it were. We have to become the ones to protect this world and to save it. Just think of the themes in movies, how often that is the theme, movie theme. How many Russell Crowe's out there had to do something to save the world from destruction, or the likes. This is, this is the theme that is, runs through everything, it run, runs through children's movies, animations, you know, the guardians of the galaxy, galaxies with the little owls and all of that. Everybody protecting this whole world. This is not up to us. Peter says, this world, in, in chapter three, is destined to go up in flames, to be burned. 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, by the same word that he created, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. It's going to be destroyed. So friends, this thing that the end is not coming, or Jesus isn't coming back, has caused us to make idols out of causes that is just not necessary. This thing of saving the one whale that's beached and spilling, spending millions of, on it, whereas many others get harpooned. I mean, this is crazy. The thing of recently, there was a giraffe who had a born with a deformed leg, and then millions and billions are being spent to give him a new prosthesis every once in a while. It is this nonsense, people. There are these things, I'm sure he can do it, but don't die on that mountain. To, be, to go green, it is good, but are we really going green? What does it cost to do those kind of things? You know, things of, of all these green ideas that we can have that can become an idol. It is good to do it. It was the first thing that, that uh, commission that God gave Adam is to take care of this planet. So I'm all for it. We don't 
unnecessarily increase our carbon footprint and all these things, but don't make it a mountain to die on, friends. There's much more valuable things to live for and to give your life to and to pursue wholeheartedly. There's nothing in this world that we can take with us except the souls of people and that which you have invested whilst on this earth into eternity. That's what Jesus says. Which brings me to the third point. The third principle that Peter says, if you can have this before your mind, you will live a productive Christian life and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom and glory of God. And that is live with eternity in mind every single day of your life. Let eternity inform your every decision, every action, the way you raise your children, everything that you do. Now, many of you may have heard me speak on this. I, I, I love this topic because I think it is so relevant. But I wanted to show you that it is even here. It made its way into the three th top things that Peter said. The man who is the first, one of the first church fathers, who loves people, loves Jesus, who wants to see the church mature and reach its fullness and receive a rich welcome into the kingdom of God. He said, live with eternity in heart. And we see it throughout Scripture. We see it started with, with um, right from the beginning. But I'll just pick out a few. Solomon, the wisest man that's ever lived. Solomon wrote the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And he says, everything is a chasing after wind. It is meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless until, until. He says, God has set eternity in the heart of man. Then his whole discourse starts changing. And he comes to the end of, of the book and he says, in chapter 12, verse 13, now all has been heard. Here is a conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. In other words, what, what Solomon is saying, life does not end at death. Life continues. We are all created eternal beings. Your life up to death is the temporal, it is now but it's going to continue. And in that continuation, you are going to give account of everything that you've ever did. And for the Christian, that account giving, according to 2 Corinthians 5, is the rewards that you receive. Because the wrongs and the sins and all that Jesus already paid for, he's absorbed all of that. He's absorbed the wrath of God. So the account that you would be giving is God actually rewarding you for, for it. Jesus says there will not be a single act of kindness that you've done in my name that will go unrewarded. That is in the Gospels. That is what he said. So to say, for the unbeliever, it will be a dreadful day because you would face God, face his condemnation and his wrath for all eternity. That's what it, the truth is. So if you are wise, like Solomon, you would live with eternity in mind and bear it in mind in everything that you do. The psalmist, it is full of the psalms. It's everywhere. David says that I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's his dream. That's what he wants. That's what you live for. And Nick quoted Asaph in Psalm 73. Asaph is looking at the world and he says it just looks like the wicked is prospering and the righteous is, is the ones that are struggling. And he is depressed about this whole situation until he enters the sanctuary of the Lord and they consider their final destiny. Eternity brings everything into perspective. Outside of eternity, life does not make sense. The whole of Scripture tells you that. Paul tells you that. All of them. Even the prophets. Isaiah, 
All these prophecies come through Isaiah 57, I mean 65, verse 17. And he says, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. Our joy is not in this world, it's in what God is going to create and what we can take with us as souls of people into that to celebrate it together for all eternity. Jesus himself spoke about heaven more than any other character in the Bible. Even in his introduction into the whole principle of Christian living in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's what it is. Look at it, Matthew 6, verse 19 to 20. That's what he's saying. You have the opportunity to store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Peter says that treasure will be kept for you, inheritance. We did it when we looked at book 1 Peter 1, verse 4. Kept for you perfectly and you for it by the power of God. Paul in Colossians, all over the place actually, Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians 15, that whole chapter about heaven. But there, Colossians 3, he says, verse 1 to 3, have eternity in mind or have set your mind, set your heart, so your emotions and your, on eternity at all times. That's what he's saying. John says in 1 John 3, verse 3, he says, if you have eternity in mind, if you who consider the second coming of Christ, you will keep yourself pure. So that is a way that we, we live a holy life unto God is knowing that there's heaven or hell coming. The whole of Revelation that John gives us, that God gave through John, is the revelation of Jesus, the exalted Jesus. One day, how are we going to see him? When I worship here, I get emotional because I just anticipate the beauty of that day. Seeing <laughs> this resurrected, beautiful Jesus, victorious, riding on the white horse, the one who who has done all, has given me all so that I can live an overcoming, victorious Christian life and actually enter into his rest with him. It's so beautiful. That's what I want to pour my life out for, is to see him. So what does it mean to live with eternity in, in, in mind? It is knowing that there is a reckoning coming, and for you a reward, and for the other who does not know God, what I said, condemnation, punishment, but also know that, that you have the ability to invest in eternity. In other words, what he is saying is that this life, up until death, is insignificantly short. Absolutely insignificantly short. And that's why Peter, Paul, and all the others can say that our light and momentary troubles, whatever suffering or persecution, whatever you would endure on earth, is actually light and momentary in the context of eternity. So in terms of time, it's insignificantly short. But in terms of importance, it is insurmountably significant. Because what you do in this life will determine where you will spend eternity and what that experience would be like for you. It's not going to be the same for everyone. Jesus says you have the opportunity to invest there and you will enjoy that investment for all eternity. So what person do not want to invest there? You must be really stupid if you will not invest there. So that's to live for. And Peter says, if you do that, friends, you will live a life of adopting, pursuing the attributes, the qualities of God, the nature of God with every fiber of your being. Not by works, remember, but by the knowledge of him by increasing your knowledge of him, 
by searching the scriptures, by living, by putting those things into practice so that they become part of your expression of your nature. It is his nature living through you. So then, what are the three things? It is to know God. And I want to announce this, and that is that we as elders have felt that we would love to create a forum for you to increase your experiential knowledge of God in the year to come. And so we have set aside a Sunday evening, we call it next level for this, at this point, to create exactly that forum in which we can come and explore and learn and grow in our experiential knowledge of God. So I'd love for you to commit to that. Nick has challenged us to be disciples in 2024. And that is the way for us to do it, to be there, to, to engage all your faculties, to worship him with, with all of your, and love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which means I can engage this mind to love him more. I can engage my every ability, my strength to love him more because I know him more. And as I get to know him more, more of him will come out of me and I'll live overcoming victorious lives. Secondly, we need to be alert. Do not just fall over and act dead. When like what the possums and those, and even spiders sometimes do, when it comes to false teachings. Don't, don't accept it. Stand up to it. It is worth it, friends. We, we don't do that because for the generations that comes after us, we have a responsibility. If we allow those things in, it will undermine the authority of the scriptures and the sovereignty of God. And lastly, live every day with eternity in your heart, you love it, you look forward to it, and in your mind, you set your days, you set your thoughts, you make your decisions based on the impact that that would have in eternity. Amen. So that's... Um it's a man that went out to do battle today. So what, what that is about, uh, this ministry this morning is, um, is he's fighting a fight there. There's a, there's a, there's a war going on. Uh, I always, um, I'm very careful what I uh, refer to other than scriptures. Even books sometimes I'm scared to refer to, but there's, I was watching this movie recently about exorcism and people getting delivered and um, there's all this weird stuff going on but one of the things I take out of it I took out many things but one of the things I took out of it is when the, when the devil himself presents the, 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 what the saints know is to, is to pray so, so when, there's a, when there's a demon when there's a manifestation of evil which of course what Francis was saying was is very hidden in our philosophy and our age and you know you just need to medicate yourself more um, you don't need to know Jesus because to know Jesus you'll get so what they do is these ancient men they, they try and bring trinkets and, and prayers and crosses and crucifixes into the face of the devil in the hope that he will retreat and I think what France is touching on is bigger than we realize. And if we are prophetic people, we can pick up what God is doing. Um, when he arrived at the other side of the region of, of the Garadians, two demon-possessed men came from the tombs, met him, 
They were so violent that no one could pass that way. And this is what they say to Jesus. What do you want with us, O Son of God? As soon as Jesus comes, the, de- the demons tremble. The, the knowledge of God, the presence of God, they begin to tremble. What do you have to do with us? Have you come to torment us before our time? Have you come to torture us, they say, before our time? And they beg him, can you drive us into the pigs? And he says, go. Let's stand together. So today what's happening is, is Francois was holding up the word of God to, um, to the spirit of the, of the age, the deception, the lies. Um, you, can, you can live like you want. It's, and, and we need to go back and say, Lord, no, I, I can't just live how I want. I, I can't just do what I want with my finances. I need to invest into the kingdom. I need to be generous. I need to get to know the word of God. I need to put my, throw my phone into the swimming pool or do whatever and just spend some time thinking about you. Amen? Because the, the devil will just keep taking ground and he'll just keep taking ground and he'll keep taking ground until he'll throttle us. Amen? Or he'll put a hook in us. And he'll say, no, you're depressed because your father was depressed and your mother was depressed and you're depressed and your children will be depressed. We need to hold up the Jesus and say, no, my Jesus has set me free. He's, he's transformed my mind. I've got an eternity. I'm going to devil. You see what I'm saying, guys? So this morning was a, a fight. It wasn't just a teaching that will titillate our intellects. It hopefully was something that will do something to our souls. Amen? And so before we worship, I want to I I pray. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I want to say amen to the battle. And so, so we've stopped fighting and we've become passive and everything's tolerated. And, uh, and we've, 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 we're becoming effeminate. And we, 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 we're doing stuff that's so, that, that God is saying, you rise up, O great warriors of God, including women, and say, I'm going to pray. I'm going to raise a standard. Amen. So it was a good preach, Francois. It was a, it was a, it was a fight this morning. Amen. And, and you can say, well, I don't believe about evolution like that. I'm telling you that the devil will come and deceive us. And, and we, what we're listening to, brothers and sisters, and I'm not preaching another sermon here, it can be so dangerous, so dangerous. In the church throughout the world, there's deception coming in. And so, so I say amen to this preach, amen? I say amen to holding up the word of God. I say amen to gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. I say amen to lifting up the crucifix like, like uh, Moses in the desert. And if you looked at him, you were healed. One drop of his blood. To set you free. One single drop, drop. His, he bled out. So you can have another drop and another f- flood to wash you and to cleanse you. Amen. And so we, we thank you, Lord, for this word. And, um, and we don't just rush off into our culture of coffee and donuts and whatever we eat, samosas. We just pause for a moment. You spirits that have tormented the body of Christ and have lied to the body and have seduced the body, we declare war on you. And we raise up the word of God to you, the authentic, powerful, eternal, um, inerrant word of God to you. And we command you in the name of Jesus to go and to leave God's people. Amen. Say amen with me, church. We say amen. 
and we declare that you are good Jesus and we declare that your light is more powerful than the darkness and would you chase the demons out of our lives Lord would you show us would you would you would you name that would be named what they are and we can see this is what that is this is what that is that actually we, we need a knowledge of Jesus we need to live with eternity in mind we need to say no to deception and to false heresy in Jesus name brood over us our Lord Revive us, our Lord. Set us free, our Lord, from sickness and, and, and destruction, Lord, and, and living poorly, Lord Jesus, and, and selling out to rubbish, Lord. Deliver us from that stuff in Jesus' name. And the church says, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. We praise you and we worship you. And I thank you for this clear word this morning, Lord. And we, 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 we let it sit on us. We let it, the seed land in us, Jesus. And above all, maybe your transformative power can come. Your transforming power can wash over us in Jesus' name. Spirit of God, set us free, I pray this morning, as we worship in our last song. Can you say amen?